April 24th of this year, shots rang out at a retirement community in Palm Beach, Florida. Authorities reported that Robert Levine fired five shots at fellow village member Herbert Merritt. Levine, it seems, was upset because Merritt was walking his dog too closely to the golf course. Merritt reported to deputies that he'd never met Levine before, but suddenly he came racing up on his golf course, started yelling, pulled up his weapon, began firing, wounding Merritt in the ankle. Apparently, that was not enough for this enraged man. He grabbed a golf club and proceeded to whack Merritt at least four times. I don't know if there were charges filed. We can be pretty sure, however, that Levine can be just put in that category of typical cat lover. Uh, it's an extreme example, but doesn't it seem like there are just more and more conflicts out of control these days? And it's sad the damage that they do. Coach doesn't play a player enough, and there are angry emails exchanged. Business partners have been friends forever, and then there's a falling out, and they don't talk anymore. Neighbors argue over HOA violations, and now they won't be in a Bible study together. That's a true story. Not from here, but it's a true story. Family members disagree on politics, and you know what's going to happen Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? Don't come to our house if you voted for the other team. And kids always get in conflict with their parents. Maybe you saw the birthday card several years ago, the teenager with tattoos from head to foot baggy clothes, big nose ring, oversized, spiked hair, says to his friend, I really don't like dressing this way, but it keeps my parents from dragging me everywhere they go. <laughs> we can all appreciate the Rodney King question asked years ago, why can't we all just get along? And so Jesus looks at his followers and he says, now you are the light of the world. Christians ought to be different in the way that we deal in our relationships, especially when it comes to conflict. Jesus said in John 13, by this everybody will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 1 John 4.20, if anybody says I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. If the person who does not love, for the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Boy, that used to make me feel guilty when I was a little kid and I'd get in a fight with my brother. Oh no, I don't love God. That's not the point, but certainly the point is that we ought to, we ought to do well in our relationships. We ought to love each other. That doesn't mean that the relationships are going to be conflict-free, but at least they ought to be conflict-positive if we're followers of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says to us, you are the light of the world. What does it look like for us to carry the light of Christ in our relationships, even in times of conflict? That's why today I want to look at a story, at a, at a relationship conflict between two great leaders of the Bible, Paul and Barnabas, or as he was known when he was born, Saul and Barnabas. 
two fine Christian men who get into conflicts. In fact, in Acts chapter 11, verse 24, it says that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Large numbers of people were added to the Lord. And then he went to Troas to search for Saul. Part of what's so sad about the conflict that they get into is because their relationship begins so tenderly, so filled with grace. Let's learn from their example today so we can be the light of the world, not just so that we can handle our conflicts well, but so that we can be the light of the world in a, in a world that's really dark with conflict. Heavenly Father, would you speak to us today? Would you fill this place with your presence? We thank you for your word, that your word is living and active. What next steps do you have for us? Help us to see and to follow. Through Christ I pray, amen. I will. What will you do as a result? I want you to hear God speak to you today. What actions will you take under his direction? It's helpful to understand that Paul and Barnabas became friends from the very first day, basically, that Paul became a follower of Christ. I said already that Paul's original name was Saul. When we first meet him, his mama's given, the name his mama gave him was Saul. Um, When Saul grew up, he grew up in a Jewish family, had excellent teaching under a great rabbi, Gamaliel, became a leader of leaders, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, so committed to Judaism, he despised Christianity, he didn't believe in Jesus. And so he would go from town to town persecuting Christians, trying to kill churches, overseeing the execution of Christians. And then one day, Paul is on his way to Damascus when literally Jesus shows up in a bright light and knocks him down. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul comes to believe in Jesus and he begins to follow Jesus. Now, I want for you to place yourself in the position of those Christians in those churches who first welcomed Saul. You start to hear the word, oh, Saul, the one who once killed your uncle and aunt, the ones who threw your brothers in prison. That Saul is now a follower of Christ. He says he's a follower of Christ. How do you respond? Somehow I don't think that we find ourselves, some of us are old enough to remember Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Remember that wonderful scene where the guy comes in killing people. Let's stop bickering about who killed who. You know, it's a party, but he killed the bride. You know, oh, but it's a party. I don't think that they were saying, oh, let's not worry about Paul killing people. They didn't want to accept Paul. Imagine the position that Paul is in. The Christians don't want to accept him. They don't trust him. His old friends see him as a Benedict Arnold, or shall we say a Bryce Harper, Paul is alone and enter Barnabas. His name means son of encouragement. It's a nickname. Here's a quiz. What's Barnabas' real name? Somebody asked me that question a couple of months ago, and for the life of, I could not remember. Joseph. Nobody, rem- nobody calls him by his real name, Joseph, because he was such an encourager. He was known as son of encouragement. And in this moment when Paul most needs an encourager, God sends Barnabas to his side. By the way, have you thought about the 
number of people that you walk by every week that need you to be their Barnabas? You know, God places people in our lives every week that we pass by that we can encourage. I know that I miss more opportunities than I, than I seize, but um, in, in August, I was actually working on this message in August, and I had just taken our car to get worked on. As I was walking out outside the shop, there was a woman sitting in a, at a, on a bench, and at first I walked by her, and then I kind of got this nudge saying, you know what, I need to ask her how I can pray for her. And so I turned around and I stopped. And I said, ma'am, how can I pray for you? I said, I'm going to be praying later on. She was probably in her early 30s. I said, I'm going to be praying later on. How can I pray for you? And she kind of was taken back by this. And, and then she really opened up. She said, man, I really appreciate that. She said, I'm struggling to figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life. And she started talking basically about how her, she hasn't found anything meaningful to do with her life. And she really is searching for meaning. And she's kind of losing hope for for meaning. And so we listen. I talk about new life and, and that I'm a minister and I understand. And I, I asked her, can, well, can I pray for you right now? And she said, yes. And so I prayed and thanked God that God has made her in his image for a purpose, that he's our good shepherd, that he wants to lead her down paths of righteousness, that he will. So I'm praying God's blessing on her. And after the word, she said, you know, you are, you are an answer to prayer for me. You, you are a blessing to me. And I thanked her, and she said, you're such a blessing to me. I want to write, can I write a check for $10,000 to your church? That didn't really happen. <laughs> the rest of the story is true. I want to, someday I hope to have one of those stories that I can kind of, the, really good preachers see, seem to be able to have those stories with dramatic conclusions or else they're really good liars. But at any rate, so that didn't happen. The rest of it did though, but, but I thought how many times do I walk past somebody every week who's like that? She didn't look like she had anything going on that was a burden to her, but she was, and she really appreciated the encouragement. By the way, I did that a couple of weeks ago. There was a fellow, when I, I, I try to walk, several times a week, and I walked by a guy. I said, how can I pray for you? He said, I'm really burdened. I said, really, why? He says, yeah, but all, this, all the land and the property that I own is burdening me. He says, and I think I probably own your house too. And I thought, okay, this guy needs more than my prayers, but he definitely needs my prayers. So it doesn't always work out so well, but you never know. Barnabas, Barnabas stopped, and he befriends Paul, and Paul needed a friend. And many have wondered what might have happened to Paul if Barnabas had not stopped to encourage him. See, 10 years later, Barnabas is sent by the church in Jerusalem to lead the church, to kind of be the senior pastor of the church in Antioch, in Syria. I don't know if we have a picture of uh, that on the map or not. What, seven years have probably passed since Barnabas first was with Saul? Maybe, maybe 10 years since he was first with Saul. Um, and where's Saul? Saul's back home in Tarsus, off the grid, out of ministry. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts eleven twenty four that says Barnabas was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Large numbers of people were added to the Lord. And then he went to Tarsus from Antioch to Tarsus, where Paul is, to search for Paul. Paul's just making tents up there, out of ministry, and Barnabas thinks, I need a good associate minister. I'm going to go get Paul. 
Verse 26 says, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church there and taught large numbers. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And under the leadership of Paul and Barnabas, Antioch becomes one of the most predominant churches, not only of the first century, but the second and even third century. We still quote leaders of the Antioch church to this day. Now, about a year later, Paul and Barnabas believe that God's leading them to start some churches in what we would today call Turkey. And so they go. What's kind of interesting is to watch the, their, their relationship progress. At first, the Bible, when Luke, who writes the book of Acts, lists them, he lists Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, or Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, about five times, and then all of a sudden there's a switch, and the next nine times, the final nine times, it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. See, Barnabas recognizes the superior leadership ability gifts of Paul, and Barnabas is willing to just kind of humble himself and to step back so Paul can take the lead. I think it was President Reagan who had the plaque in his office that says, it's amazing how much can get accomplished when no one cares who gets the credit. You work with somebody who always wants to get the credit. If I can beat up on ministers for a second, ministers these days work so hard to get name recognition, to promote their brand, not Barnabas. Barnabas is humble enough. He doesn't care who gets the credit as long as Jesus gets the glory and people are coming to Christ. That's the kind of man that Barnabas is. Humble yourself, therefore, the Bible says, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. But then one day a sharp disagreement breaks out with Paul and Barnabas over Barnabas's cousin, John Mark. When Barnabas went, Paul and Barnabas went on this first missionary journey, the church planting in Turkey. At first, cousin, Barnabas, cousin John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas. But early into the journey, for some reason, the Bible doesn't tell us, John Mark bugged out. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was afraid of disease. Paul got sick. Maybe he was afraid of opposition and, 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 and the crowds and the imprisonment. Maybe he was just homesick. We don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us. All it says is that all of a sudden, John Mark left, abandoned them. So now Paul and Barnabas have to carry the ministry on their own. About a year later, they decide that they're going to go back and visit the churches. Acts 15, 36 Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John, who is called Mark. To which Paul responds, you're nuts. Loose translation from the Greek, verse 38. But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and not, had not gone on with them to the work. It's not hard to imagine how the conflict at this point would escalate. Barnabas says, Paul, give him a second chance. Paul insists, why? Because he's your cousin? Barnabas, Paul, that's not fair. I remember another guy who wanted a second chance. Remember that guy, Paul? Paul's like, that's different, Barnabas. We need somebody who won't run at first sight of angry mobs. Jesus said, whoever puts his hand to the plow and turns back is not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. It is always helpful in arguments to throw in a little Jesus. You know, that always 
calms things down. Paul says past performance predicts the future. Barnabas says, really, Paul? Past performance predicts the future. When was the last time you killed a Christian, Paul? Past performance predicts? Isn't that heretical, Paul? John Mark needs a chance. Give him a second chance. He's changing. I've been working on him. If we don't give him another chance, it's going to crush him. Back and forth they go. Paul could have quoted Proverbs 25, verse 19. Trusting an unreliable person in a difficult time is like a rotten tooth or a faltering foot. Barnabas could have quoted Jesus back. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, they'll be shown mercy. Verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. And that's the last we hear of Barnabas in the book of Acts. Verse 40 says, but Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Again, we have a map there showing you the direction that Paul and Silas took. And you see Cyprus there, that island. Barnabas went there, but we don't know anything else. His story just kind of stops at that point. The band breaks up. And I'm sure it was sad. Sad, kind of like many of you were so sad when the Backstreet Boys or One Direction broke up, I suppose. But at least the gospel continued to be spread. Can you imagine Paul having to answer the questions as he went on to these churches that he had started with Barnabas? Where's Barnabas? Oh, we couldn't agree how to move forward. Well, what happened? Why couldn't you work things out? Is Barnabas ever going to come see us again? Those questions would have haunted Paul. Maybe people were wondering, you know, I wonder if Paul's just spinning here. I wonder what the real story is. Credibility could have been undermined. What a shame that they couldn't have worked out some kind of compromise. But they didn't. The team separates. The damage is done. Now, there are lots that we can learn from this conflict with Paul and Barnabas. I'm not going to share with you exhaustively 15 steps to resolving conflict. Let me share with you some basic principles that I hope you'll keep in mind. There's some things that you can quickly think of to help give you wisdom in the midst of conflict. The first is that conflict is inevitable. Be careful. Don't overreact. Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron, one person sharpens another. Wonderful poetry until you realize iron sharpening iron. Well, it's good that we sharpen each other, but that means violence. You know, that means contact. That's not safe. When relationships, the only way to not have conflict in relationships is to keep your distance from each other so you lack intimacy, you lack closeness. You don't help each other much, but you stay safe. See, even mature Christian people like Paul and Barnabas have sharp disagreements. But the key is, slow down, don't overreact. When I was in college, I was going through some stuff and got on the phone with um, Roseanne Russell, who was a mentor of mine, who'd been a college um, uh, registrar and um, was very familiar with, this, with everything. And Roseanne listened to me and she gave me some great wisdom I'll never forget. She said, Brett, right now, everything is accelerated and exaggerated. 
Everything is moving really fast and it's distorted. Don't overreact. Slow down. Be calm. How is it that we overreact? I don't know about you, but I often overreact with words. Proverbs 15, am I the only one? 15.2 says, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge attractive, but the mouth of fools blurts out foolishness. That should like be the subheading of my name, blurts out foolishness. Heard about the guy that was arguing and he said to his friend, hey, there's always two sides to every story. And his friend blurts out, yeah, and in both sides, you're a jerk. I don't think that that kind of helps very much, but we like to be able to come back with a good retort. When I was a kid, there was a book. I love the title of this book. It says, when two or three are gathered together, the title of the book was, when two or three are gathered together, somebody spills the milk. When two or three are together, conflict is inevitable, but division is not. A gentle answer turns away anger, Proverbs 15.1 says, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. Slow down. Watch your words. Assess the problem. A wise person once said in every situation, every conflict you need to dis decide, discern, is that it cold or is it cancer? If it's cold, you can basically ignore it. It'll go away. Take care of itself. If it's cancer, you got to do surgery. What's our problem? What's the problem that we often have? Often the problem is we overreact to colds, we do surgery, and all of a problem, all of a sudden, the, a, a problem that wasn't a, a big problem becomes a big problem because you overreact with your words, your actions, your obsessiveness, your pushing. It's like just, sometimes you just got to let it go, rise above. Other times there's cancer. And what's the tendency with cancer? I don't want to get into, I don't want to deal with this. You know, hopefully it'll just go away. But if you ignore cancer, it metastasizes. When there's conflict, it's inevitable. Be patient, don't overreact, but assess cancer or cold. Next, conflict is dangerous, so be humble. Proverbs 18 verse 19 says, an offended brother is harder to reach than a fortified city Quarrels are like bars of a fortress. Humility means you focus on winning the friend, not winning the fight. I know this is, everyone's like, oh, of course. But how often is it that we lose focus on the friendship because we're so focused on, I want to be understood? We have this sense of ought, like, my way is right. I'm logical. They're not logical. If they were just logical like I am, then and we lose the friendship because we win the battle. Remember that Greek king, Pyrrhus, about 300 years before Christ, fancied himself to be the next Alexander the Great, conqueror of the world. He took his Greek armies and attacked two Roman cities and won both battles, but in the process lost so many soldiers it was so costly. He created so much anger in his enemies. He was quoted as saying, if we're victorious like this in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. And it's from him that we get the term 
Pyrrhic victory. You win the battle, you lose the war. You win the fight, you lose the friendship. Because, what's it say? An offended brother is harder to reach than a fortified city. Quarrels are like bars of a fortress. Oh, you've made your point. You've been understood. You've shamed the other person into submission. And you've also just created a fortress against you in the relationship. So be humble. Isn't this why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, turn the other cheek. When somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn the other, offer the other also. Jesus is not saying allow yourself to be a victim of abuse. He's not saying be, um, you know, be codependent and somebody else who's an abusive person. But he's saying sometimes the smart thing is just not to f- strike back. Sometimes you win the war by losing the battle. You don't always have to be understood. You don't always have to win the fight. You don't have to prove, always have to prove your superiority. I realize if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a really hard time with this. Because like, I'd be a victim. No, you have to trust God to take care of you, not yourself. You want to know how lost, <laughs> you know how, how I know this idea is rejected by the world today? Washington, D.C. We live in a world, in a city where people don't believe in turning the other cheek. Does anybody think that our political situation would be improved just a little bit if politicians could learn it's better to win the war and lose battles? When you get hit, you don't always have to hit back. Do you get hit personally? Do you really always have to hit back personally? When you get insulted, do you really have to insult back? Sometimes it's better just to turn the other cheek, be humble, and let God vindicate you. Think about the Old Testament. I love the example of Abraham and Lot. Their shepherds are fighting because their flocks have become so great. And Abraham says, Lot, Let's stop the bickering and fighting between our shepherds. Tell you what, God's given us the plain. He's given us the mountainous areas. You choose which way you want to go. You take one side, I'll take the other. We'll go our separate ways and we can live in peace. Now, the wonderful thing about this is that as the patriarch, Abraham had the right to say, I'm going to take the plain. That's preferable. That's better. That's easier. But instead, he trusts himself to God. In a sense, he turns the other cheek and says, Lot, you choose what land you want. And Lot says, I'll take the plain. And he gives Abraham the harder territory. But history shows us that God prospered Abraham and Lot ended up finding himself in Sodom, losing everything. Sometimes it's better Always it's better to trust God to vindicate us. But see, this is where if, you're not, if you don't have a relationship with God, it's really hard for you to deal with conflicts well because you can't turn the other cheek because you have to defend yourself. You have to prove yourself right. You have to be understood. 
And it's part of the reason there's so much conflict in the world because people just feel like if they don't fight them for themselves, nobody else is going to and they're going to be victims. Why? Because they can't trust God because they don't believe in God to vindicate them. But not us. It is better to lose a fight because you trust God than to lose your character and let him win the battle. By the way, this also means, uh, so, so be humble. It also means take responsibility for yourself, for the relationship. Remember in Matthew 7, Jesus says, don't judge. But what he means by that is, why do you look at your, the speck in your brother's eye? Why, well, you got a log in your own eye. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll be able to see clearly to help your brother with a speck in their eye. What's Jesus saying? In the midst of conflict, what do we tend to do? We tend to magnify the faults of others and minimize our own responsibility. But if we're going to deal with conflict well, we have to humble ourselves and say, what's my responsibility? I'm going to focus on my responsibility. How am I at fault here? How do I need to change here? What does it mean for me to be loving, to be humble, to be kind? You deal with your own fault and then you look at your brother and and maybe, maybe you'll be able to help, but you know what? They may not be open to you helping, but at least you've allowed God to use that to change you. One counselor has written, we should humbly assess our own contribution to the conflict and correct our own behavior and attitude before trying to point out someone else's shortcomings. Is this like foreign language in our world right now? Any marriages, any marriages think you'd improve? If in your next conflict, rather than pointing the finger at your spouse saying it's your fault, if you would just change, if you would just change, and looking at your own, some of you spouses are thinking, man, I hope my spouse is listening to this so he'll change finally kind of thing. I'm glad that you appreciate my humor in this. The word is humble. It takes humility. It takes trusting God. Serious conflict can be resolved, but we have to work it out humbly, biblically, Sometimes it can't be resolved and we have to conclude peacefully. This is the story of Paul and Barnabas. I wish it could have been resolved perfectly, but it wasn't so, but at least it was resolved peacefully. They went their separate ways. They never badmouthed each other. You know, sometimes people in the church get upset with each other and they'll start badmouthing the church. Sometimes people will come to new life from other churches. And there are some good reasons to leave a church. Most reasons to leave churches are bad. But I know there's going to be trouble when somebody comes and immediately they start bad-mouthing people in the other church, bad-mouthing the leadership of the other church, because I know it's just going to be a matter of time before they're bad-mouthing here. Sometimes we may disagree and separate, but we need to go not in anger, but in honor, if possible. Romans 12, 18 says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. That means we need to be gracious as well. We need to be ready to forgive. That's the story of Paul. Second Timothy chapter 4 is so healing because this is the last letter that Paul will ever write. And among his last words, he writes to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he has loved this world, has deserted me. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in ministry. It's probably been about 10 years since Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways over a conflict because of John Mark. And now Paul is at the end of his life and there are three people he wants to be close to, 
Luke is with him. He wants Peter, or he wants Timothy to come, and he wants Timothy to bring with him of all of the people he could have asked for. He asks for John Mark. He's useful. You know, that says a lot about Paul. You know the way that people treat you says more about them than it does about you? I'm so thankful for how kind you all have been to me and my family through the years. You know, generous and cards and you remember on my birthday or, or at the holidays, sometimes you'll send cookies. Don't send cookies. Do you think I need more cookies? Um, a couple of years ago, you took up a collection so that, because we know my family loves baseball, so we could go watch baseball games. I want you to know we're still milking that money so we can see baseball games. Now, COVID, we didn't see many baseball games during COVID, but it, I tell you, and, I, and every time I think about these things, and every time, I, I want you to know, I realize your kindness says a lot more about you than it does about me or about us. Paul's response here to Timothy, to, 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 to John Mark says a little bit about John Mark's change, but it says a whole lot more about Paul's heart than about John Mark's perfection. Second thing I want you to appreciate, though, is that reconciliation doesn't usually happen because of some dramatic apology. I was completely wrong. Rarely does that happen. Usually it happens as a result of time, healing grace, and some small thing that breaks the ice. My parents divorced, and it was a bitter divorce. And there were years when they couldn't be in the same room together, couldn't be on the same property together. And there were years when we thought they would probably always be this way. There was just too much deep hurt. But you know what broke the ice? Mom and dad went to a funeral one day. And, um, and after the funeral, they were standing there and and my mom said to dad, you know, John, at least we did something right with our kids. And dad said, well, Diane, that's because you are a great mom. And mom said, well, I, you know, I, I tried to be a good mom. And dad interrupted said, no, Diane, you weren't a good mom. You are a great mom. That's what my mom needed to hear. And that's what God used to break the ice. And I'm so thankful for the amount of time, for the memories that I can have now, times that my family's been able to spend together because of healing grace and time and a simple word that broke the ice for reconciliation. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Be gracious. Is there somebody who has hurt you deeply? Is there a broken relationship that you're part of and you are not at peace, and it makes you a slave. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. See, we're not surprised that Paul and Barnabas could handle this conflict so well because they had both been forgiven by God in Christ. And they just needed time and God's healing grace to bring harmony in the relationship. Again, you are the light of the world. 
if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know what I'm saying when I say this. There's never peace without Jesus Christ. A secular world without Christ will never find peace. The chaos and anger and hostility and conflict that we see in our world today is a direct result of the rejection of Jesus Christ and a lack of understanding of his grace. But you are the light of the world. We are. Conflict is inevitable. Broken relationships are not. If we will just let Jesus Christ really take us over. Deborah Haynes is a member of New Life and part of our Wednesday night Zoom Bible study. By the way, I'm so glad that we have the small group tables out here. If you're looking for a small group, I can just do the advertisement Wednesday night, 6.30 to 8 o'clock. We're going through the book of Acts right now. I'd love to have you with us. Deborah and Ernie, her husband, are part of that. In 1956, a group of husbands and wives tried to reach an unreached group of people, a tribe in Ecuador, the Quichuas. Instead, the men of those tribes of that tribe killed the husbands who were trying to reach them for Christ. Deborah Haynes' parents heard about what had gone on and they decided that they would go become missionaries with those surviving widows. One of Deborah's friends growing up was Steve Saint. Steve's dad, Nate, was one of the men who was killed by the Quechuas and his father was specifically killed by a Quechua by the name of Minkia. The story is told in a movie called Tip of the Spear, if you ever want to watch that. Well, the wives went on to reach the tribe for Christ. Minkia gave his life to Christ. Steve Saint was interviewed by USA Today where he said he will never forget the pain and heartache of losing his dad, but he said, I can't imagine not loving Minkia, a man who has adopted me as his own. He said the interviewer for USA Today scoffed. He couldn't understand. He told Steve that if he were in his shoes, he could forgive Minkia, maybe, but love him, he said, that's morbid. See, lost people can't understand the love and forgiveness of Christ. You're the light of the world. Do you realize how lost our world is? People can't know love and forgiveness without Christ. This, woman, this person thinks it's morbid. Steve said their, their relationship doesn't make sense unless you put God into the equation. It is so true. See, once we experience the kindness and grace of Jesus Christ, once we really experience his grace, then we can be bestowers of his grace. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ Jesus. I don't do well in conflict. So I think I fail more often than I do. And I tell you, my only hope is not in me trying harder. It is in me learning to abide in the one who is kind and gracious and to walk with him as my good shepherd. And that's your only hope as well. And then we can be the light of the worlds. Heavenly Father, would you make us your people? Would you really, Lord, we want to love as you love. We want to be the light in this dark place. We live in a world that's so filled with conflict and rage.
And we don't want to just join it, Lord. We want to change it because we want Jesus to change it. Um, So, Lord, whatever that means, we surrender to you. And I pray specifically right now for people who are outside of Jesus and feeling like they can do life on their own, feeling like um, that somehow life without you is better, that this would be the day that they come and surrender to the one who made them, that they're made for, and find peace with you, and therefore they can find peace in their relationships as well. It's through the Christ I pray these things. Amen.